Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So last week we saw that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means to have the freedom to deny yourself. The freedom to take up the cross that comes from bearing the name of Christ and the freedom to follow Jesus even if that means following him to your martyrdom. Jesus promised the disciples that anyone who loses his life for the sake of the name of Christ would not lose it, in fact, but would gain it. That is a shocking message to a world that idolizes power. I mean, even within the church, we have people that look to the size of the facility or the number of people in the pews, um, to the perceived impact in the local community or whatever it might be, rather than look at the plain promise of God that in the blessed word and sacrament ministry of the church, God comes with salvation, forgiveness, and true peace. Well, that was last week. Now that we have that straight, we move on to our lesson this week, which is what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what precipitates this Entire discourse is the question that the disciples ask wrongheadedly. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Seems like a simple enough question. But the manner in which Jesus answers the question reveals that the question's not even the right question. They just have it all wrong. Truly I say to you, he says, unless you turn and become like little children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself to become like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Interesting. Now, in that culture, children were loved for sure. Parents loved their children. They sought to have children to expand their families. Uh, but, But nevertheless, children were not ever used, never used as an example of something positive. Uh, So this is shocking for Jesus to take a child and put the child in their midst. And this child, Paideia, is a little child. It could be an infant to a toddler. Uh, That is how this is recorded. Uh, In fact, there's a church history that it was Irenaeus, the early church father, that was put, this little child that was put in the midst. But it's not in the scripture. That's just church history. So maybe, maybe not. But what is it about this child that makes them an example? So there's a popular and misguided notion that the child is innocent. Oh, it's just a little innocent child. You have to be like the innocent child. And then that's how you're the greatest. Except there's a problem. Of course, everyone who's seen the terrors of little children can recognize this right away. Oh, yeah, no, They're not innocent, trust me. They're not innocent. In fact, nobody is innocent, not even the little child that appears to be so sweet and innocent. Children are, in fact, sinful from the womb. Your your mom and dad did not have to teach you how to sin. Okay, kids, now it's going to be a lesson on how to sin. No, you just did it automatically. You knew how to do it. So you have that from your womb. So Jesus is not saying... Be like this little child and be innocent. That's not what he's getting at. All right. There's another popular idea that 
children have a simple faith. They just believe. Uh, the, the idea that, that gets carried with this is that, well, children just gullibly believe anything that's told to them. So be like that. Just have a simple gullible faith and don't question anything. That's not what Jesus is saying either, though. Um, there's nothing sinful about questioning, about wanting to see uh, a reason, to have a rational uh, reason for believing something. Um, God never asks us to just simply believe. He, he doesn't do that. Now, he does ask us to believe the word of promise, and he tells us that because of the sinfulness in our hearts, that his very calling to us through the word, saying, believe this promise, tells you the promise and also works faith in you at the same time. So, so there is that sense in, in which we do believe without having to look at God under a microscope because we can't look at him under a microscope. But that's not a childlike faith. God has given uh, us truth. We have in the scriptures the word of truth and the, the word of truth bears scrutiny. You can kick the tires and they're not going to fall off of the wheel, uh, fall off of the car, okay? Because it is true. Because it's true, it withstands scrutiny. So you can subject it to the scrutiny of inquiry, and it comes up uh, never failing. Uh, the, one of the best examples of this would be the resurrection. <laughs> People saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. That worked faith in them, seeing and knowing, yes, Jesus has risen from the dead. All of the promises God have made, has made are true. So God gives us evidences that we can see and know that it is true, uh, he gave as the, for the prophets, you know, he said, this is how you tell a false prophet from a true prophet. If the thing that the prophet said came to pass, he's a true prophet. If the thing he said does not come to pass, he's not a true prophet. And by the way, what do you do with a, someone who is a false prophet under the uh, uh, laws of the Old Testament? They would be uh, killed, They'd be executed for being a false prophet. So keep that in mind when you have modern day prophets talk about, uh, you know, how they're a modern day prophet or something like that, or uh, apostles, people that claim to be apostles modern day. Do you really want to go down that road? That's what we should be asking them. But anyway, so Jesus is not saying that a child is innocent. He's not saying that a child is gullible, that, that it's credulity or naivete is what is to be uh, sought after. So what is he getting at with his example of putting a child in their midst? Well, child is dependent. And as I said, this child, we know from the word that was used, there's lots of different words you could use. Uh, and the one that was used for this child was paideo, which means uh, an infant to uh, a toddler. So this is a very young child. A child like that is utterly dependent they need someone to feed them, to change their diapers, to uh, uh, lead them you know, in, their, in their life. They, they lack independence. They are totally dependent upon others to care for them. And that is what Jesus is pointing to. He's saying you must become like this child. In other words, become dependent upon Christ himself. A broken and contrite heart, 
O God, you will not despise. That's Psalm 51. See, the one who stands before the throne of grace with none of his own righteousness, no righteousness of his own, but stands simply before the throne of grace and says, have mercy on me, a sinner, is the one who is dependent upon Christ. And he's the one who goes away justified because that's what it means to be like a little, to become like a little child. It means to put aside all of your own righteousness and to receive the righteousness that comes from Christ, which, by the way, is a righteousness that surpasses all of our righteousness. <clears throat> this is the greatest in the, the kingdom. And in a sense, it's like Jesus is saying, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who is the neediest. You know, my mom had six children living and uh, she said to us uh, before, she said, well, the one, my favorite child is always the one that needs me the most. You know, it was not a, it was just a confession of how, her, how she loved us. You know, she always loved the one who needed her the most. You know, that's the one that she needed to, to care for and, and put things aside uh, for. And, and that's sort of, in a sense, what Jesus is saying is that the one that is the most needy that's the one who's greatest in the kingdom because that's the one who, who needs to be loved the most. The one who is uh, needy is the one who is uh, prone to falling away, is tempted to fall away. And with that understanding, you notice the concern that Jesus has in the way he speaks to the apostles here. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. See, Jesus cares about that one. He doesn't want him drawn into sin. Woe to the one by whom temptation comes. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's not talking about children. He's talking about believers, people in, who believe and people who are needy. They need his righteousness because they lack it on their own. But he says, these little ones, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. They might look insignificant to you, Jesus is saying, but there are angels in heaven interceding for them who see, they behold the face of God and they minister to these needy ones, these little ones. Jesus said, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Indeed, God loves all of his children, all of them, including all of you and me. The theme of saving the most needy continues when Jesus talks about forgiveness among believers. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. He listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now he goes on to describe what, what we do if, if we have someone who has fallen into sin. But why? What's it all about? It's about poking someone in the, in the eye and saying, see, I'm better than you? No, of course not. It's about recognizing the peril that they face. So you see them and you see someone falling into sin, being tempted away from God's salvation, and you say, I can't let this happen. I need to, I need to call them back. And, and the goal is not poking them in the eye. The goal is the salvation of their soul. 
It's their eternal life. And it's serious. So you have to do this. So you try first in private. Then if that doesn't work, you get two or three people together and you go and visit them. But again, the goal of all this is their salvation. It's not their condemnation. It's their salvation. And then then if that doesn't work, then the whole church gathers around them and says, look, I know you didn't believe Mike. And so Mike and John and Tim all went to see you. You didn't believe them either. Well, guess what? It's all of us. It's this entire church. We all stand here telling you, walk away from that, brother. That's not the right thing for you. We love you. We don't want you falling into this. All with the goal of their salvation. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying that God loves us so much that he doesn't want anyone lost. Even the one lost sheep that wanders off, he, he celebrates when that one lost sheep comes back. That means the sinner who sits there and says, well, I got to clean up my act before I go to church. No, just come here. Don't clean up your act. God will clean you up. In fact, God will celebrate when you darken the doorway and come in. The church is not going to fall down on you. Isn't that one thing we've, you've heard before? Is that, oh, if I walked into the church, the whole structure would collapse on me because they've you know, lived an unrepentant life or whatever. No, that's not how God looks at you. You're a lost sheep. Come back to him. He celebrates your return. So when the disciples asked Jesus this question, this wrong-headed question of who is the greatest, he pointed them away from themselves. This goes right in line with what he was uh, saying last week. Deny yourself. He points them away from themselves. And he points them to the one who is needy in their midst. That's the greatest. Treat that one as the, as the greatest. Go after that one, the one that's the neediest. This is how we are to treat one another. We love one another and we earnestly desire that all believers continue steadfast in the faith. Keep this in mind too. I'll keep this in mind when one of you has to pull me aside and say, look, you're wrong about this or whatever. I I need to keep that in mind. And you all need to keep that in mind too. We all do. We need to keep that in mind that we will be wrong sometimes and we need to be pulled aside and told. And if you love someone, then you will do that. If you love them, that's how you love them, by, by doing that. I know it's awkward. I know it's uncomfortable. Now, perhaps you failed at this. Perhaps within the church you have failed. Maybe sometimes you've been too harsh on somebody and driven them away. Or maybe sometimes you haven't been harsh enough. You should have given them the warning. Think about the passage from Ezekiel that we read. God said, I, I appointed you as a, a watchman. And he said, don't, don't bite your tongue and hold back my law. You need to preach my law so people know what f- faces them. Yeah, that's... Uh, they don't see, people don't see the need for a savior unless they see their sin and see themselves rightly in the mirror of God's law. Perhaps you've been too harsh. Perhaps you've been not harsh enough. Could go both ways. Perhaps you saw the sin that someone was committing and you sort of ignored it, looked the other way, said it's not my business. 
That's not how we're to treat each other within the church. It is our business, not for the sake of poking someone in the eye, but for the sake of their eternal soul. You didn't want to come off as judgmental, perhaps? Well, I would venture a guess that every single one of you can hold your hand up and say, yes, I have fallen short there before, and I can too. The good news is that your heavenly father knows all of that. Whatever shortcomings you have, he knows those, plus the shortcomings that you, don't even, you aren't even aware of. Don't worry, he knows those too. He knows all of them. He's seen all of them. And he sent Jesus Christ to die for those sins, for all of those sins that you have committed, sins of omission, sins of commission. He sent Jesus Christ to die for those sins. He saw you the worst of your sins and said, yeah, I'm sending Jesus Christ to die for your sins. So in the final analysis, we're all uh, within the, the church. We're all in this together. And we gather together, we confess our sins and we receive absolution. We, we come here and we confess our sins in front of each other, to each other and to God and we receive absolution. And we come to this table having received absolution and we receive God's gifts of word and sacrament in this church in which he works faith in us to believe. The world around us will be, can be, and will be a hostile place. But in our effort within the church to not be a hostile place, we have to take this teaching of Jesus, Jesus seriously. What does he mean by this? Sometimes it means speaking a word of law to someone out of love. Sometimes it means seeing someone who has a troubled conscience and speaking the gospel to them. The law has done its job. You're feeling condemned? I have good news for you. Jesus Christ died for your sins. You are set free. And that's a challenge. You could spend your entire lives learning how to do this. But that is what Jesus is getting at. When he puts the child in their midst and says, become like this child, that is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's telling you, he's telling the church for all time, Have regard for that person that seems to be the neediest among you. I mean, we love to exalt people that that, uh, check all the boxes for worldly power and influence. What Jesus is saying is, put all that aside. It's the one that is most in need. That's the one that you need to treat as the greatest. The peace of God which passes all understanding... Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.